Welcome back. Welcome back. This is the Sunday Wire. I'm your host, Patrick Henningsen. We're streaming out live on the Alternate Current Radio Network and also at 21stCenturyWire.com. And after the live show, you can download this episode on iTunes for the podcasting community. We're actually on the ground. We're broadcasting first time ever, which is a bit strange, from the country of Syria. And... Uh, we just want to thank Alternate Current Radio for, for helping to make this possible and uh, the technical team for giving us the right equipment and uh, allowing that to happen. So, And what a beautiful uh, two guests we've had today, lovely, beyond uh, ex- anything we could expect, uh, Rima Hakim and uh, Gurfran Darawan. I mean, uh, really beautiful segments. Uh, so if you've missed any of those, you can listen to it after the show. We'll have the episode up on the, the, the site minutes after the show. Uh, so you can check that out. Now I'm here with Vanessa Beely. And, uh, well, I don't know where to begin. But uh, we've Vanessa, thank you for, for being here, obviously, and for making uh, this happen, really. And um, it's, uh, you know, for me personally, it's, it's a lot. It's been a lot to take in in a very short period of time and um uh and, and the group too that uh, the journalists the international uh, delegation and the people we've we've been with uh it's 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 been a lot to take in we a lot of information uh visual information um knowledge uh we've seen things that i i, I saw things that i never thought i would ever see um or th- that i read about that I maybe saw in photographs, but I didn't ever think I would see with my own eyes. And that's probably, for me, one of the biggest challenges, is it went from a two-dimensional story to a four-dimensional story, very like this, with a snap of a finger. And, uh, yeah, I'm still, you know, we we can look at the photos afterwards uh, of places where we've been, but it it doesn't compare to the reality of it um but uh i don't know where where to begin <laughs> i don't know what you want to talk about but there's a lot to talk about there's a lot going on here yeah and i think um you know you put your finger on it people um people sit back home um and you know they receive uh these incredibly uh credible to a large degree uh, reports through the mainstream media, through our regimes, through NATO-aligned NGOs that present a picture um, that is unbelievably and abhorrently biased, but is so well packaged and so well presented and so um, well argued, let's say, by a monstrous apparatus of propaganda, publicity, marketing. I mean, this is one of the biggest propaganda heists that we've ever seen in our lifetime. The biggest ever. Yeah. Um, And so, um, you know, I certainly don't blame people um, for falling it. It's not a blame game. This is not a blame game. But I think what you're touching on is um, the profound uh, shocking nature of the truth that you're confronted with when you come here and it's not only the factual proof it's seeing and touching and hearing and feeling the the shock and the horror the grieving the mourning um, the loss the depth of suffering that these people are enduring and are still finding the means to express to citizens of the very nations that are destroying them. And again, this is that's certainly one of the things that sort of affected me the most in the first few visits here was the generosity and the hospitality of these people towards us, despite what our governments are inflicting upon them, both through economic terrorism, through military terrorism, and through media terrorism. You know, all, on all three levels, we are we are the terrorists here. <laughs> we in the West, you know, our governments, our media, our NGOs, our um, 
organizations, our so-called anti-anti-war organizations, as Jean Bricmont calls them, perfectly. You know, um, all of our left-wing organizations that are basically working in lockstep with NATO to per- to to maintain this perpetual conflict, to maintain the propaganda that enables and facilitates the continued violent atrocities, sectarian atrocities, um, unbelievable acts of terror against these people. Um, and so, yes, you know, coming here, all of us as analysts sit at home and, and discuss and, and to a large extent comprehend on an intellectual level what is happening in Syria. But to come here and be faced with, for example, in, in Jabrin, um, you know, an 80-year-old man literally howling with pain and, and loss and sorrow after the uh, suicide bombing of the, of the buses in uh, Rashtin um, that took the lives of, um, figures vary, but um, Farah Shahabi told us 116 children, 200 civilians in total. It's massive. To actually be faced with this naked, raw grief uh, literally 24 hours after one of the, to me, one of the, the greatest atrocities of this six-year war happened on the day that we arrived in Aleppo. God. And these people in Kafra and Fua um, have not, you know, this is not an isolated incident. They've been suffering for two years under full siege, um, but since 2011, partial siege. So from March 2015, um, they've They've been um, under full siege from Arasham and Nusra Front. Um, and that includes daily shelling with rockets, shells, grad missiles. Um, women that we met, actually, Ava Bartlett and I met the last time we were in Syria together uh, in August. We met with um, some evacuees from Kafla and Fuhr who had managed to leave as another part of the amnesty and reconciliation deal. A woman who had been sniped through the head in her own kitchen uh, was paralyzed down one side of her body um, and was still undergoing physiotherapy. And, you know, this is just one individual in a tapestry of suffering for these people children who are sniped on a daily basis, people who are starved, deprived of medical aid, deprived of electricity, deprived of water, have absolutely no means to keep warm in the winter or to to stay uh, hydrated in the summer, children who are suffering um, with bone deficiencies, children with skin diseases who are unable to get the treatment. You know, it's, it's endless, the, the sort of the catalogue of suffering that these people have endured. And then for them to be evacuated uh, on the 13th of April, to leave underneath the, the Amnesty and Reconciliation deal that, that allowed simultaneous evacuation of terrorists, Arar Sham fighters from Madaya, who had been occupying Madaya, Again, starving the people inside Madaya, so taking aid in, very similar to East Aleppo, taking the aid in from the Syrian government and the various agencies. Um, and I know also from just looking through the facts and figures that per capita, Madaya actually received four times the amount of aid. We've actually gone through and done the figures in the last sort of 24 hours than the people of Kafraim for. So the people in Madaya were, were receiving way more aid than, than the people of Kafraim for throughout this, this siege. Um, so under this amnesty reconciliation agreement, the terrorists were allowed to leave from Zabadani and Madaya, and these 5,000 civilians were allowed to um, be evacuated from Kafra and Four. So they obviously felt finally, one, you know, as was expressed to us, they didn't want to leave. It's their land, it's their property, it's their homes. I mean, you've seen this part everywhere we've been. You know, this is, they're not UN numbers. They're not UN numbers of displaced people inside Syria. They are people who've left their homes, who've left behind everything that they've worked for all of their life, all of their belongings, every memory, every single artifact that they've ever collected or, or, or ever held dear has been destroyed or left behind when they flee. Their land that they feel 
rooted in that they feel they belong to that that is their identity they're leaving behind so they had left all of that already you know in not in a physical or in a in a mental um comfortable state they were then made to uh, drive through various terrorist held areas the journey that should have taken 45 minutes took them seven hours according to the bus driver's testimony because they were forced to drive through terrorist held areas where they were further taunted, threatened with massacre. I mean, one woman actually said every to everywhere they went, they thought that they were about to be massacred. And, and she made the very clear point. The only thing that stopped it were literally phone calls from, from the various countries that were involved in these negotiations. So um, Qatar, Turkey and Iran. So the calls would have come in from Turkey almost certainly who, who control the terrorist factions um, in Idlib to prevent them from actually carrying out their sectarian and violent threats. And remembering back in December 2016, the buses that were sent in to evacuate again civilians from Kafarambur were burned, and there is footage of the same terrorists calling for their extermination, calling for their, you know, the deaths of the infidels. So we know already that these people are um, threatened by the various extremist factions that exist inside Syria. And those are those particular villages, uh, Kafar and Fur, are Shiite. Yes. Uh, but, but the only ones left in the in Idlib, right? Yeah, they're basically marooned in Idlib. I mean, you know, it's it's, it's a very difficult one to talk about because um, the the sectarian argument is not one that the Syrian people would ever use. I mean, you might have picked up on that having been here now for a few days. That very few people will talk to you about being Shia or being Christian or being Muslim. It's, they're Syrian, first and foremost. So it almost feels, to me, when I talk about them being Shia Muslim, it, it feels almost like a betrayal of, of the unity of the Syrian yeah, you people. Yeah, you don't have fuel that sectarian. No. But, 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 but at the same time, it's necessary. It's an observation. Because, yes, yeah. and, it, and, it's, and it, it's, it, it's an example of the sectarian and extremism of the terror factions violent, and militant violent, factions yeah. that have been in, you know, imposed upon this country by our governments mm. who are continuing to fund them, to, to promote them, to support them, to equip them, to and, arm them. And fueling the sectarian narrative. The, the U.S. Yeah. is quite open about it. They yeah. say, we need a Sunni uh, government because the, uh, the current president in Syria is not taking care of the Sunni people and so forth. So it's just an endless mm. fueling of the sectarian conversation yeah coming from exactly. outside yeah yeah um and so obviously then um the buses have finally arrived into rashtin now also just to explain about rashtin because a lot of people don't really understand the connection or the geograph geographical connection rashtin is an area um sort of to the southwest i think of aleppo um and it's where uh the the the, the final um, factions, extremist factions were taken when they were evacuated from East Aleppo in December so Nusra Front uh, Nor al-Denzinki, the child beheaders, Ar-Al-Sham Fastakim, all of the, the various um, tens of militant factions and splinter groups were finally evacuated from the final district of East Aleppo in December and they were taken to Rashtin as a sort of holding area now, since then, and again, this goes almost blanket unreported in Western media, since they've been taken to Rashtin, they have, of course, continued to fire rockets and mortars uh, into particularly the Alhamdaniya area of, of Aleppo. So they've continued um, their, their, their program of picking off uh, Syrian civilians inside West Aleppo, the same program that, that they conducted for four and a half years while they occupied East Aleppo. But this is absolutely eradicated from our consciousness by yeah. uh, Western corporate media. So this is a very important point to make. So already um, these terrorists that, that were inside Rashdin had been conducting you know, violent activity against the civilians of West Aleppo. Pierre, since Pierre told us about that yeah. when we first saw him. Yeah. It's daily basis. Yeah. It's happening on a daily basis. Yeah. You don't ever see this in the news. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So they came into this compound, which is basically held by these various extremist factions. So imagine, you know, the fear from these people. We were then told um, that for 
48 hours they were effectively starved. They were kept on the buses. The women and children were allowed off to go to the toilet. The men were not allowed off. The men had their weapons taken from them. And again, this is a very important point to make because under the Amnesty and Reconciliation Deal, and we saw this in Alwar in Homs, um, the Nusra Front terrorists are allowed to leave with their light weapons as protection for their families en route. And so the same um, agreement was made for the evacuees of Kafra and Fur, that the men traveling with the families would be allowed to take their light weapons, their AK-47s, as, if you like, a guarantee against um, any sort of uh, retaliation from the terrorists en route. Their weapons were taken off them, so at that point they had no means of defending themselves or defending the families. For 48 hours they were kept inside the buses. They were given rations, which is another familiar um, aspect of any form of terrorist or extremist militant um, occupation inside Syria. Um, and on the day of the bombing, we were told um, by numerous witnesses, not, not just one, um, and by the bus drivers themselves, that um, in the morning um, the, the terrorists arrived with large transparent bags full of crisps and biscuits. The children were allowed off the buses. And, and uh, like I said before, you know, I've, I've experienced this when, when Pierre and I actually went to Jabrin in December and children who'd been under terrorist occupation for four and a half years. I mean, they go crazy if you turn up with, with anything. Um, biscuits, chocolate, food, anything like this. So it, was, it appeared to be a deliberate attempt to sort of get the children to lock in on this food distribution. It was filmed, we were told very clearly, it was filmed, um, and then they were immediately put back on the buses. And, and, you know, the word charade, the word staged, the word planned was used by everybody that we spoke to absolutely independently and spontaneously. There was no prompting, and uh, all of the interviews that we did that have now been subtitled and are available are unedited. So, you know, none of these people were prompted into saying what they said. But everybody described it as a charade or a staging. And then we were told, um, just prior to the explosion, a series of sort of strange events happened. First of all, um, four Turkish ambulances were spotted arriving just before the explosion and parking up. And we were told, um, when we asked how they knew it was Turkish ambulances, we were told it was the writing on the side. Um, one of the women on one of the buses um, needed some medicine. So about 10 minutes before the explosion, she'd asked uh, for a Diclon injection from the terrorists. And they said to her, no, 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 we've sent the Syrian Arab Red Crescent away. And they told her to get back on the bus. And then um, almost immediately after this, the transparent bags with crisps and biscuits came back with the, with the terrorist distributors. And the children um, were allowed off the buses um, one or two testimonies said young men were also allowed off with the children um, there's some sort of discrepancies but definitely the children were allowed off and again they swarmed towards the food and it's at that moment um, that the truck we believe now it's um, a blue truck that drove alongside um, the children as they were running after the food um, that was detonated um, and then you know then it really starts to get um, absolutely inhumane um, and, and I think we're all still sort of reeling from the shock of, of what we heard because we then have um, over a hundred mutilated wounded um, dead dying <laughs> children um, and other children who were caught up in the blast shocked, um, disoriented unable to fathom what on earth has just happened. Um, And we were told that the mothers of these children, who at this stage, I can't even imagine what was going through their minds, were allowed off the bus, but only for a very short period of time. And they were filmed. And again, the words were spoken as if they were rescuing us. So we were told by the various mothers who got off these buses to try and find body parts to try and find their relatives to try and find their children um, were, were literally being filmed 
and and the the terrorists were, were filming themselves as if they were helping these civilians. Very important point. But then after about 10 minutes, before they could even reach their children in many cases, they were actually forced back onto the buses at gunpoint. The buses were locked. And when the drivers themselves told us they tried to move the buses to an area that had shelter and protection, they were told at gunpoint to, to stay where they were. So again, there's an element of, of you know, if, if these terrorists are at our Sharm al-Nusra front as they were identified um, by the witnesses were genuinely um, trying to help these people. Why on earth would you shut mothers back in buses? Um, And then um, we were told that that many, well, we know that 200 of these injured, dying, mostly children, civilians, were piled, literally piled on top of one another. And there is plenty of footage to demonstrate that. So thrown in the back of a pickup truck? Yeah, like, with absolutely no like, medical care, um, and they were driven away from the scene. So, you know, you know, while Boris Johnson is exercising ISIS diplomacy and calling for the decapitation of President President Assad, an elected leader of a sovereign nation, over an incident that is unproven, uninvestigated, and largely discredited by experts and analysts both outside and inside Syria at the same time there has been no condemnation from Boris Johnson as part of his ISIS diplomacy of this atrocity that has been committed against children by the very terrorist factions that he is funding and supporting aiding and abetting in this bloodletting that is occurring inside Syria, this sectarian bloodletting that has a very clear objective also in one hand, not only to to obviously um, destabilize the country, um, amplify any sectarian divisions or create them if there are none, but also to, it's a very clear um, objective to reduce the confidence in the Syrian government to push these people to say, why were we not protected? Mm. Why was this able to happen? Do you think that was one of the main objectives of that horrific event? Because... Yes. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. I I do really believe that. And that that is really twisted. Yes. Because, you know, if, if you... If you even consider, I mean, I've been posting the images of um, the evacuation of Nusra Front at Alwar, and a lot of people have expressed anger. You know, why is the Syrian government doing this? Why are they allowing these terrorists, these monsters, these murderers to leave and to leave with their weapons? Well, one of the reasons that was explained to us, and, you know, we in the West actually have a lot to learn from Syria. Not a lot. We, we, we have nothing but extraordinary things to learn from this country Mm. and from the state and from the army, from its people Mm. is quite simply how the Syrian government view this, is that the families of those terrorists and even the terrorists are still Syrian Mm. they are still their responsibility as human beings they are still their people and we spoke to the governor of Homs who told us that he went onto every single coach and he spoke with those terrorists and their families. And he told us of terrorists who sat there in tears because they didn't want to be a part of this anymore. And we know all the time that there are many of these different factions who are Syrian, not, not the foreign mercenaries who, who have come in to this conflict. We've been told of, of many of these reconciliation programs where they have actually gone back to fighting alongside the Syrian Arab army. And there are many stories of successful reunification of fighters with Syrian army. Um, even, you know, we've heard this from Syrian Arab army soldiers. So, you know, rather than condemn or ridicule or, or, or um, show, you know, horror at the level of reconciliation that is being practiced by the Syrian government. We should admire it and respect it. And, and, you know, it's not our choice. This is Syria. This is the Syrian people. This is the Syrian government. And the Syrian government is doing what it considers to be its best 
by its own people. And so, but that's not the image that the West wants to see portrayed or conveyed. And so what they need to do, of course, is to create some sort of instability and what what better way to do it and, and you know that sticks in my throat to say it because to see the images of, of these mutilated children going through this shock having gone through two years of trauma having gone through 48 hours of starvation and trauma in Rashtin having then suffered this bombing to then be piled into the backs of trucks driven 60 kilometers into Turkey without their parents and their parents being left behind in the buses not even knowing where these children are being taken you know, thinking the worst are they being taken for organ trafficking are they being ta- what's happening to them I mean everything, every possible scenario would, as a mother would be going through your mind and at rightfully this point. so yeah. mm. and um, when we spoke to these um, survivors the day after you know, this is exactly what they were saying. I mean, um, Zainab, who we spoke to, she had lost um, 20 members of her family, so cousins, relatives, um, distant relatives, but 20 relatives in the bomb blast and 10 missing. I mean, it's, it's, it's absolutely impossible to even comprehend the level of trauma that these people had gone through. And we saw it. We saw it during the interview. Um, we now know that um, I think the majority have actually been brought back, but actually they've been brought back untreated. Mm. And this is a very important point to make. So whatever argument these, these extremist factions use for having taken those children away from their parents, away from the area, away from any safety, back into terrorist-held areas, back into Turkey, they came back to Aleppo untreated. So nothing was done to help them in that interim period, and there are still some missing. Um, and what I probably think happened was that it was it was an atrocity of such magnitude that international pressure was brought to bear upon Turkey to send them back, because otherwise I don't think we would have seen them come back so quickly. If at all. <laughs> if at all. Yeah. So they have now come back, and actually I think... Um, that the Kaflan for a deal has been sort of completed. But, um, you know, I think we're all still um, trying to sort of process um, the absolutely unbelievably, um, I can't even, there's not even any words with which I can sort of describe it anymore. Um, But also another very important point to make is regarding the white helmets because, of course, you know, the copy-paste media almost instantaneously put out a story that the white helmets were there and the white helmets were helping civilians. Now, again, very clearly, all testimony when asked about the white helmets, no, 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 they were not helping civilians as usual. They were helping, they took away the bodies of the Nusra Front fighters who were caught up in the blast, and that was it. And we also have to make it very clear that um, one of the White Helmets who was there, Mawaya Aga Hassan, um, who has been uh, involved since he has been a member of the White Helmets in a number of executions of Syrian Arab army prisoners of war. Um, In early 2016, two prisoners of war, uh, Syrian Arab army, were taken from Khantuman close to Aleppo. They were publicly humiliated, tortured, and publicly executed and this white helmet posted images of their torture, their humiliation he took a selfie of them when they were um, being tortured um, and he posted their execution to his Facebook page with you know, celebratory comments mm-hmm. uh, he was then allegedly sacked although no public statement was ever made um, when within two weeks he was back with the white helmets as a cameraman filming their various um, promotional activities. So he was present in Rashtin, which is, to me, a very clear indication he's probably one of the most um, sectarian, violent members of the White Helmets, publicly so. Um, And even the photographer, uh, Habak, who was, you know, whose image on his knees, the iconic image that, of course, has been diffused by all corporate media... Uh, has very clear connections with the various extremist factions in Idlib, 
he was in Han Shehun for the um, alleged chemical weapon attack. He was filming there, and again, very conveniently made it to Rushdie in time. Same for guy. This attack. Yeah, same guy. More than a coincidence. Can't be. It can't so. be. I believe it so. It cannot I mean, be. You know, even even more. Let's say mainstream journalists here have stated very clearly that this entire event was pre-planned. Um, and so when you start to sort of uh, consider why it was planned as such, um, of course, it, it sort of created a potential propaganda coup for the White Helmets saying, you know, we saved the Shia villages from Kafrai and Fura. Mm. But, you know, it's very hard. For a year, the White Helmets have campaigned on social media, publicly in demonstrations for the burning, the extermination, the devastation, and the destruction of Kafra and Fur. So it doesn't really wash anyway um, that they would suddenly have an epiphany uh, and and decide to become the non-sectarian, impartial, neutral humanitarians that that their propaganda dictates that they are, but that their actions completely belie. I was I was blown away uh, immediately after that event to hear the reports that uh, they were there saving people it was like you're you're saying to yourself no no it can't be it really can't be mm. not this time and there the, there it was mm. and and what it did it's is disgusting it, it's it is beyond disgusting but what's worse vanessa is that it validated just about everything that we've uh, seen and exposed and uncovered over the last two years almost two years okay mm. Um, it's the it's the sort of thing, Vanessa. You don't want to be right about. No, you you really don't. Not not another time. And uh, but it should be a wake up call for people to really look at this and and see what what a sham. <laughs> you know what a theatrical. Uh, it's like a theatrical performance that's just gone bad. Really, I think this is one time. Um, I mean, I was speaking to to Mike at UK column today, and. Um, you know, we did a very quick report on it also. And I think, actually, that, that this one, because the voices of the very people who were absolutely, you know, involved in this, suffered because of this, were able to be released instantaneously to the West, to people in the West, I think, actually, it's had tremendous impact because I think any mother out there that is hearing the story... It has to affect them. It, it, there has to be a level of empathy that perhaps has not been felt before when you see a mother weeping because of, of this entire charade that she's just gone through that has just ripped her life apart. Mm. You know, she's, she's watched her children dying in front of her through the glass of, of, of the window of a bus that she's unable to get out of. I mean, this, this and is... she's called out the charade. Yes. She's called it out without any prompting. No, none. I mean, I didn't actually expect to to hear it so clearly. Um, You know, and... And and, and the mainstream media were there, Vanessa. Okay. Someone from the Washington Post, maybe, was there. So how come they're not getting... Well, the Washington Post, I mean, Louisa Lovelock was actually who put out the first white helmet um, heroism story. And, of course, you know, we call it now copy-paste media. And that's basically what it was. Then, of course, you saw everybody else follow suit. And, yeah, I I don't know the name of the journalist who was there from Washington Post, but we were told he was from Washington Post. I haven't actually, to be fair, I haven't looked at what they've written Mm. since he was there. Yeah. Um, But I haven't seen any great change in in Western media as, as a universal kind of reporting of it. And, in fact, we've seen... Um, for example, Piers Morgan in the the mail jump on, really jump on, on the anti-Syria, anti-President Assad bandwagon. I mean, he wrote one of the most vicious, hideous pieces uh, two days ago. I mean, I, I was just completely, um, like, again, horrified by it. Um, so, you know, so to me, this appears to be um, an effort to one, obviously, further destabilize Syria, further um, immerse Syria and the Syrian people into a level of depravity, inhumanity, and terrorism that we've never seen before. Never. I mean, you know, we heard again when we were in Homs and we were being told 
about the Free Syrian Army, the so-called moderates, mm-hmm. who, and I'm sorry for the listeners, but this has to be heard, who took a pregnant woman, they sliced open her belly, they cut off the head of the fetus and use it as a football. You know, and this is just one story, but this one is, of many. You know, you know you're hearing many. them now. One of many. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, if we do nothing else, then we have to get across to the people in the West the extent to which these people here are living under the threat of atrocities that we cannot even comprehend. We cannot even um, get our heads around. We can't even. You know, it's 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 hellish. It's satanic. Yeah, it's it occultist. It's not even. It's it's not. It's just not human. Mm. Um, and this is what the people who live in this country have to deal with yeah, every day on a daily basis. Even every walking day. down the street, yeah. they they risk being kidnapped, or they risk being suicide bombed, or, or they risk or being mortar dropping mortar on dropped. their head. Yeah, yeah. You know, so so there's no real escape from it. There's no real. Uh, respite from it. I mean, Malula, we went to Malula on one of the first days. Um, we know um, from 2013 to 2014, when the FSA and Nusra Front entered Malula, um, there were a number of young men who were kidnapped, um, six. And since that point in 2013, the residents of Malula have been trying to trace those kidnapped. We've heard in the last week that they were murdered they were executed and so um, you know again another community that was already torn apart that was already um, damaged mutilated um, that already suffered sectarian violence that already suffered sectarian killing bloodletting um, who held on to some degree of hope that those relatives that had been Kidnapped. Um, many among them were from the clergy, were priests. Um, might be found, and that somehow, uh, you know, a part of the healing process would be the finding of of those um, kidnapped victims. And then, three years on, that hope is lost. And it brings back the the yeah, it brings the, the everything back. to it the surface. It brings back the pain. It brings yeah. back the anger. It brings back the rage. Mm. It interrupts that rebuilding, that restorative yeah. process that all of these people are trying to go through. And that's another thing. You know, in Aleppo, we see the streets have been cleaned, the, the buildings are, are being repaired, people are trying to go back um, into their lives, they're trying to get back into their homes, the children are going back to school. The repair process is so fast here. Mm. But then, you know, then the Rashdeen incident happens, and it's like they, they have no respite, they have no time to get onto a plateau of of of, um, of healing from from whatever traumas they've gone through, there's none of that. Mm. It's just a constant pressure upon them, a, a constant. You know, we talk about post-traumatic stress. I mean, it's the mm. same as in Gaza or in Palestine. It's that constant traumatic stress here. And 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 for every event that happens here, the reflection that's projected in the West is a type of immediate terrorism, I think. Mm. That's the way I look at it. Mm. So even people in Britain or the U.S., they're trying to slowly get their head around what's going on, and all of a sudden they get blasted with another burst of um, propaganda. Well, those children were injured and killed more than once. Mm-hmm. You know, they were injured and killed in Kafra and Fua. They were injured and killed in Rashtin. They were injured and killed again spiritually by our media. Yes. Yeah. Who did not even give them the justice of telling the truth? Yep. Mm. Our media keep killing these people. Our media keep terrorizing these people. Why? Because they do not listen to them. They don't hear them. They dehumanize them. The Telegraph. These are government supporters. 116 children under the age of 10 are government supporters. So that's they okay. labeled they labeled them in the article yeah. as government it's supporters. CNN. It's yeah. a hiccup. It's, yeah. Nick, you know, P- Nick Peyton Walsh. Yeah. Senior cor- foreign correspondent for CNN. That's what he said. He mm-hmm. said, oh, this was a hiccup. Mm-hmm. I thought that's an interesting choice of words, Nick. Yeah. You've been in the field for 20 years, and that's the best you can do. Yeah. Very, I'm not impressed. Let's mm-hmm. just say that. I'm not impressed. And how many media, apart from RT, 
how many media who knew that we were here actually asked us for, for any of the footage or any mm. of the interviews? You know, any responsible media should none. have done that. Yeah, none. None. But, but, but what does none. that tell you? RT's trying. Exactly. They're trying exactly. to do their job. Yeah, and that's my point. Yeah. Whatever, whatever faults RT may have, you cannot fault the fact that they are attempting to be objective here. Mm. You know, and all these media are state media. It's ridiculous to say it's Russian state what, what, media. See, what, what, <laughs> I know, what, what RT were trying to do is find out what happened. Yeah. And it's a very simple concept. But isn't concept. that what journalism is? It's supposed to be. <laughs> it's supposed to be yeah. what it is. So, yeah. you know. It's not making the story first and then finding what you can to support it. And that mm. is what corporate media is. Because you're not hiding. No. You're, on, you're on social media. Anyone can contact you and ask you what you saw. In fact, they can even go and look at the video Absolutely. that you've posted. It's unedited. So it's not a mystery. You know, it's not, it's not rocket science. And, uh, but they're in, they, back to, before we got a couple minutes, before that, mm. the reconciliation process. Mm. My, this is my observation. You talked about comparing the evacuations of terrorists versus the residents of Fuengafara. What I see is a government that, the, and you say there's outrage, and yes, people are. Some people are. They would like other things to happen to the uh, the the, the Al Nusras being sent from Homs to Idlib, mm. armed with their families. But it shows a level of tolerance that's totally in character with this country, and. It, when I say in character, I mean completely consistent in how people treat each other from different religions and different communities with absolute tolerance and acceptance. That is what Syria, uh, that's a really big, strong quality here. Mm. And so I only expected that this is what the government would go for on the reconciliation process. And it's totally baffled. It's totally baffled the critics, Vanessa. Yeah. The, the people are at a loss. They don't know. In fact, they're just not even talking about it because they can't get their head around it. They don't understand why the government's doing that. But I, I, now I understand, after meeting people here, why they're doing it that way. Yeah. And, you know, I think um, just looking back through some of the photographs and um, you see the kids on the buses um, and the depth of sadness really coming from them or, or you know the, the lack of comprehension of what on earth this world has become for them how else do you stop it you know that's one lesson that, that Israel is, appears to never want to learn you know they keep up the punishment yeah. and so what it does is it will create a cycle of hate and a cycle of revenge and a cycle of, of conflict the wisdom that the Syrian government is showing is to try and break that cycle. So in perhaps this generation, they won't break it. Although we are seeing, as we've, we've heard, there are defections where it's possible without retribution because that's another very clear point to make. You know, a lot of these fighters are staying within the various extremist factions out of fear because they know, and we, we saw it in East Aleppo when they tried to get out when they tried to break out and to take amnesty they were executed so there's a level of of, um, of fear from, from within the various extremist factions as well but what, the, what I believe the Syrian government is trying to do is to break that cycle and so that the next generation is not going to look back and say you know they did this they can look back and say well okay they, they gave us a chance perhaps you know I mean Maybe that is a pipe dream, but surely, as human beings, we have to try and walk the path that our conscience dictates, mm. not the path that we've learned through living in a society that is really directed and dictated by the United States, by the UK regime, by colonialist, barbaric regimes. Mm. We need to also break out of that and to start supporting humanity where it's being demonstrated um, and trying to understand that because we've actually got so much to learn from that, you know. And it's not, again, it's not our fault. We've li lived in an environment where that kind of diplomacy, that kind of reconciliation, amnesty, wisdom, vision does not exist. It doesn't exist. We live in a, in, in a moral vacuum. Mm. 
We have no examples of that. We have here. Yes, absolutely. But you know, it, it's. But you wouldn't know it if, no. if you're watching the BBC. <laughs> no, or because it's dampened. CNN. Down, you know, it's yeah. completely. Um, mm-hmm. It's completely um, submerged by the propaganda. I mean, I just had a professor sitting right mm-hmm. where you're sitting two hours ago, talking to me in a way that I have not heard any Western academic talk mm. and i was like i'd love to be taking her courses in <laughs> studying yeah, under her yeah. i mean these are wonderful people mm. but 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 they've learned a lot mm. and they're you know they, they're sharing that and with us course. they're sharing that with us but but the question is are, are, are the west going to listen that's the big question a lot of people is listening but you know will america will britain will france listen when these people are talking because they do have something to offer I think also as as people, we now have a huge responsibility. You know, we, we are receiving the messages from Syria. We are getting it. I think more and more people these days are, are really understanding the situation here at great cost to Syria. Six years of, of, you know, terrorism. But they are, the message is getting through. Um, but when, it's not over by a long shot. I mean, you know, we know that the British government has called... The elections, we know Parliament will be dissolved. This is a real risk time mm. for Syria. Yeah. Because I actually believe, um, and many of us believe, that Britain is actually now um, driving this interventionist war. We know the White Helmets are predominantly um, controlled and funded um, by the British government. So we're at a very, very pivotal point right now. And this is when Syria needs us to raise our voices it needs us to get back on the streets it needs us to actually take control and to say we don't want another war we don't want another iraq we don't want another libya um we can't you know as humanity we cannot look back on history and say we failed on this one Mm. we can't say we failed the syrian people because they just don't deserve it Yeah, well, they, I think they've had their Libya ten times over already. Yeah. And as Garofan said before you, we've had enough. Enough. Mm. Six years, it's enough. So, you know, it makes perfect sense to to anybody who's paying attention. So, I think it's time. Well, I think hopefully, let's hope that they are going to pay attention now. Yeah. And I think people are paying attention. At a cost, like you said, big cost. But a lot more people are paying attention now than ever before. There's a chance, you know, for some some serious breakthroughs to happen. So, you know, we, uh, God knows the people need it. Yeah. The people here need it. But uh, anyway, we're going to wrap up this uh, show. And uh, we're going to hopefully be able to, uh, to share more with you next week. And it will probably be completely different, <laughs> and it'll be totally, uh, totally a, a new road we're going to go down. And uh, but uh, we want to thank everybody out there for tuning in. This is, uh, you know, history for us and for you. And um, we're doing, which, well, we're doing things that uh, really, I mean, quite frankly, Vanessa, there's a lot of media organizations who have a lot more money and yeah. power and satellite trucks and links, and then we're doing this. We're doing this on, on, on a shoestring. But, you know, we're talking to a couple of thousand people right now on the live stream. And it'll be another ten or 15,000 during the week. And there's no reason why any other media outlet can't do what we're doing right now. And they should. And so we're, we're here to encourage them to do it. That's what we're doing here. Encouraging more people, and we've met some great independent people. They've come here with their cameras. Yeah, and I think yeah. that's an important point to make. You know, if there is a delegation coming, come on it, come yeah. to Syria. You know, it's not, it's not going to bite you. No, In fact, you will come away um, unbelievably enriched and enlightened. So I can't and inspired. Mm. So um, I can't recommend it enough. And it's, it's you know, like I said, there are more and more delegations being formed now. There's more and more ways. To come into Syria safely um, and, and under guidance, and, and to, to really just come and talk to these people because we have so much to learn from them, mm-hmm. and um, 
they they just don't deserve this. They deserve us to be um, alongside them and standing in solidarity with them, just as actually the people of Dara, which according to Western media is the place where the whole so-called revolution started, who today stood in unity and solidarity with the people of Kafraim for. Mm. That is Syria. Yeah. That is Syria. Well, let's see. Um, that is a cause for hope. And I think we're going to see more of these things happen because, uh, it's you know, it's got to come to an end. It really does. It really does. And uh, thank you, Vanessa. Thank you for everything. Thank you to Grafran, Darwan, and Rima Hakim. Fantastic lineup today. Great conversations. This will all be available uh, online for everybody to listen to minutes after the show. Thank you to ACR. Thank you to our producer, Hesher. Thank you to everybody out there in the chat room. Thank you to all the team at Alternate Current Radio. And uh, again, thank you, Badger, for helping us get this Yamaha uh, <laughs> that's been uh, a real miracle worker on the road. And uh, we'll uh, hopefully be checking in with you guys again. Look at 21st Century Wire for reports from Vanessa, from me, uh, and also general news reports about what's going on here. Uh, and check out social media as well, Facebook and Twitter. We're all on there and we're all active. So go check that out. There'll be more to come and uh, there'll be bigger revelations as the weeks pass. Uh, we know that for a fact that's going to happen. So thank you, everybody. Take care. That's it. We're going to be signing out right now uh, on the Sunday Wire. I'm your host, Patrick Henningsen. All right, everybody. All the best. See you next week. <laughs>